Second Chronicles chapter 16 this evening as we continue our journey there in Second Chronicles together. At this point, we're looking now at the reign of King Asa, uh, the current king of Judah. We began looking at his reign together last time, and particularly that interesting event where Asa being a A man of God, someone who did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. He began to make a lot of spiritual reforms throughout the nation. And then he faced a tremendous obstacle at one point. We were told there in chapter 14 that a massive Ethiopian army of a million men uh, on top of that hundreds of chariots. So this million man army assembles itself in battle array against Asa and the people of Judah. And they're outnumbered two to one. But Asa, being the man of God that he was, uh, we're told that he cried out to the Lord in dependency, relying upon the Lord, and he said, Lord, uh, nothing is too hard for you, uh, and it's not impossible for you to help, whether with many or with few, and though we lack the resources and we don't have the power or the ability on our own to deal with this massive, intimidating army that we're lined up against. They said, Lord, we're resting on you, and we go out in your name against these enemies, and we ask, don't let man prevail over you. Lord, we we want your glory to come to pass, and we want to see you work, but Lord, we we can't do this. Uh, It was, in a sense, uh, for Asa, his moment, like David with Goliath, When he faced a gigantic problem, there was nothing that he could do. Uh, His own strength wasn't going to be able to solve the situation. It wasn't as if somehow he could scheme up a good plan or he could get involved and bring something to pass. There was nothing at his disposal humanly that he could do to solve the situation. And so he cried out to the Lord in dependence. Uh, And it tells us that as he just humbly cried out to the Lord and acknowledged that nothing was too hard for the Lord, God saw that faith and delighted in the fact that Asa depended upon him and saw that reliance in his humility. And remember, it says that the Lord intervened in that battle. And it just says the Lord struck the Ethiopians and the Ethiopians were overthrown uh, in that battle. Though the odds were against Judah, they somehow experienced victory because God miraculously brought that victory to pass. And on the way back from the battle and acquiring all the spoils and they're rejoicing as they're coming back, we're told that the prophet of God came out and warned King Asa and the people that as long as they were faithful to the Lord, the Lord would continue to be with them. And as long as they stood loyal to the Lord, the Lord would stand with them. Uh, But he said, look, if you forsake the Lord, uh, then he's going to forsake you. Uh, And if you don't continue to rely upon the Lord and trust the Lord, then he says, uh, you're going to find yourself very quickly defeated as you try and do things in your own strength. And we said last time, it might have seemed almost kind of like a peculiar warning to give such a warning. One would think that Asa would kind of have the impression in his mind after having this incredible triumph and faith and watching God conquer this million man army for him. uh, Why would you ever think I wouldn't trust God? I mean, I just saw God do something miraculous. I saw God do incredible things. But if we're all honest, isn't it amazing how many times we have seen God come through for us? We've watched God do something incredible. We've experienced God move in some powerful way again and maybe again and again and again. And then amazing how then next time something comes around, we can be prone to be tempted 
to not trust the Lord, to not depend upon the Lord, maybe even just to try and start scheming and doing things ourselves. So this warning has come to Asa that he would rely upon the Lord and have confidence in the Lord. And yet we now come to chapter 16 and we'll see exactly why this warning was given. It tells us chapter 16, verse 1, that it was in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, again, quite a long time now, the 36th year of his reign, so for over three and a half decades, this good king has been on the throne. He's a godly man. He's brought many wonderful spiritual reforms to the people. He's restored morality. He's cleansed the land in many ways of idolatry. A man who walked in the ways of the Lord, but even the best of men are just men at best. And we're going to see that, unfortunately, Asa had feet of clay and kind of erred in the latter days of his life and his reign. It says, in the 36th year of his reign, Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah. Again, remember, this time it's the divided nation. Judah this is the southern kingdom where Asa is reigning. Israel refers to the 10 northern tribes and Baasha is their current king. And there was always conflict oftentimes between the north and the south why the nation was in this divided kingdom for this period of time. So Baasha, the king of the north, comes down against Judah and he built up the city or the area of Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So what Baasha does is sort of makes a strategic move on what would be a very major trade route there, the area of Ramah. And it says that he comes and he starts to fortify the area of Ramah and try and take control of that area, basically to kind of cut off the ability uh, of supplies or trade to be able to flow to and from the area of Judah. So he strategically kind of cuts off this trade route the king of the north does. And this certainly would start to hurt economically and jeopardize the people. So Asa's got a problem on his hands again. Now there's some struggle, there's limitation, he's going through a time of difficulty and, and there's economic struggles going on. So it says, verse two, that Asa brought silver and gold notice not from his own treasuries but from the treasuries of the house of the lord so he's now utilizing god's resources and certainly one of the mistakes he's going to make he's going to utilize god's resources in a self-serving way uh, that wasn't the way that god intended his resources to be spent and whenever we're spending the resources and i hate to say our resources because i'm a firm believer that everything ultimately belongs to the lord um, and even what god lets us manage uh, we ultimately ought to realize that if it wasn't for the job God allowed us to have and the strength to get up and go grind through a day of work, whatever the form of occupation that may be, uh, none of us would have a dollar in our pockets. Uh, the Bible says that you know our wealth and the ability to acquire wealth, Deuteronomy 8, comes from the Lord. Uh, and God gives us the privilege to work and the opportunity to work and the resources that we earn uh, as we work in our jobs. And really, ultimately, we're just stewards and managers of everything. Uh, but certainly, I think that there is that reality, too, of you know that which we would give to the Lord, to the Lord's work, that which becomes a part of, the, as it says here, the treasuries of the house of the Lord. That is, this, is the, this is the temple money from the temple storehouse. Uh, he's taking church finances, if you would, or, you know, resources from God's temple. And he now gets those resources, King Asa does, and it says, And he sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwell in Damascus, saying to the king of Syria, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, 
I have sent you silver and gold, payment or compensation. Come, he says, break off your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So he basically seeks to utilize these resources to kind of hire out some mercenary help. He turns to the king of Syria and he says to him, look, your father and my father, uh, they had a relationship. And he says, uh, why shouldn't we have the same? And, and he says, I've sent you resources. Look, I'm asking. He says, I'm willing to pay you. I'm willing to compensate you well. Break off your allegiance with Baasha. Apparently, there was some uh, cooperation between the king of Syria and Baasha. He said, break off your allegiance with him. I can pay you much better. Uh, don't be loyal to him anymore. You become my customer now. I'm going to pay you better. Break off your allegiance with him so that kind of can stop the work that's happening there. And if you start coming against him because you're on my side, that will cause him to stop what he's doing here and redirect his attention to have to fight off any attack that you would bring against him from the north. So he kind of comes up with this interesting plot. It's kind of his strategic way to solve his problem. And indeed, he had a problem. Uh, he was dealing with a situation and it was causing difficulty for him personally. It was causing difficulty for all those connected to him. So here he is faced with a situation. And sometimes we have those in our lives, right? Situations. And that situation is causing distress or difficulty or hardship. And we, a lot of times, we want relief from that situation. This is hard. I want some relief from this. I want the problem to go away. I want the difficulty to disappear. And so we, like Asa, a lot of times, we then start plotting in the flesh, in our own minds, okay, how can I get relief? How can I get rid of this situation? How can I solve this problem? I don't like things the way they are. And so we start scheming in our minds and coming up with ideas. And it's amazing. We can come up with some pretty good ideas, even without praying, right? I mean, we have no mention in this passage of him praying and talking to God about anything. He just starts maybe, I don't know, maybe does a little research. Maybe hits Google a few times. I got a great plan. I, I researched this. It works well. And so now he's got his plan and he gets the money together and he's got the resources to be able to use at his disposal. And sometimes money can be a great asset and sometimes money can be something that causes even more problems for us. Uh, because it's amazing how if you can just tap the bank, you don't have to talk to God. And sometimes that happens too. And so here he says, I, you know, I, I don't know if I necessarily need to pray about this. I'm just going to buy my way out of this. I'll just bribe the king of Syria. I'll pay him off and I'll pay him off and just use the wealth I have so that I don't have to depend upon God or really do much of anything else. And so he makes this arrangement. And look what happens, verse 4. It says, so Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa. He said, hey, sounds good, and you're offering me a better contract uh, than Baasha was. You're going to pay me more. So he sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel in the north. And they attacked Aijon and Dan and Abel-Maim and all the steward cities of Naphtali. So he turns and now begins to attack the people in northern Israel. And it happened when Baasha then heard it, he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. And then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, he built Geba and Mizpah. So for all intensive purposes, you can tell from verses four to six there, you might adequately say it appears that Asa's plan worked, right? I mean, he came up with a great idea. He implemented his plan. He paid off the king of Syria. He came 
down. He started attacking the northern area of Israel. Baasha, who was causing this problem, now ceases his work in Ramah. He, he departs from there. He goes up to deal with the issue up north. And more than that, it says Asa then comes back in and he retakes over the area of Ramah again, verse 6. And he takes even the building materials and what was being used there and he uses it for his own purposes and he goes and builds up some other areas. So you might well say that Asa was sitting back saying, that worked great. Exactly how I planned it. <laughs> wow, that was a great plan. That, that worked out fantastic. And for all intensive purposes, it appears that his plan worked great circumstantially. He got relief temporarily. He did get relief. Now, what we're going to see, unfortunately, is that though he gets relief temporarily, that's not the same thing as getting resolution properly. And see, sometimes we can do something and we may do something that looks like a good idea it's our plan it's our little scheme or the thing we come up with in our flesh and in our humanity and we implement it or we try it and it actually works and it works out circumstantially well look at that i mean it worked it must be right i mean it worked right it worked out it solved the situation it brought relief to the thing that i didn't like and a lot of times we can look at something like that and we think, okay, then, then it must be acceptable or it wouldn't have worked out. I mean, it, I mean, yes, I mean, you know, but it worked out and, and we justify that. Hey, it seems like it's working out. And, and the thing we always got to remember is, yeah, it's working out temporarily. But what's the long-term byproduct of that? And sometimes we can do something in a scheme or a plan and we can make something work out initially circumstantially but that may not be the proper resolution the way that God wanted it to come about and there is a big difference there and notice what happens verse 7 it says at that time Hanani the seer or a prophet of God came to Asa king of Judah and he's probably thinking man he's going to say thus saith the Lord I am proud of you you didn't even have to pray this time son that was a good plan Spent my money well from the treasury of the house of the Lord. I mean, I wonder what he's thinking because, again, it looks like it worked out. And when it looks like something's working, we arrogantly think, well, God must be pleased with it. God must approve it. It worked. Do you know how many times I've heard people say that? Well, I mean, God must be okay with it. It's working. It's working out. Well, that doesn't mean God's okay with something just because something's working out circumstantially. So the prophet comes and he says to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria, that is, he relied on the arm of flesh, because you relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has now escaped from your hand. So notice the rebuke. Because you've relied on the king of Syria and you did not rely on the Lord, now he says, Long term, you have missed an opportunity to have victory and ultimately conquer the Syrian people, which is something that God ultimately wanted for them to experience long term down the road. And basically what the rebuke is conveying is because you relied on the arm of flesh and didn't rely on the Lord. Therefore, he says, the opportunity for you to experience victory or success that was going to come in the future, it's just escaped you because you forsook it because you relied on the arm of flesh instead of relying upon the Lord. 
and because you tried to fix the situation yourself and get immediate relief in the midst of your struggle, you now just forfeited the opportunity to experience some wonderful victory God wanted to give you down the road because of your impatience, because of your unwillingness to trust the Lord and to seek the Lord instead of just striving forward with your own ideas. And so he hears this unfortunate reproof. Notice he goes on, verse 8, to say to him, were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? That's referring back to that event in chapter 14 when the million man army came out against them and he says look didn't you already face a million man army and god gave you victory you you were completely outnumbered there was no way you could have taken care of the situation and you cried out to the lord in humble dependency and god came through god broke through god intervened and showed his power in your life when you trusted and wait upon him he says were they not a huge army with many he says yet verse eight because look at it because you relied on the lord he delivered them into your hand it wasn't because you came up with a great plan it wasn't because you had some really you know unique ideas or you schemed and or you relied on some other human resource or arm of the flesh in any way says no it's because you relied on the lord you relied on the lord you prayed and you said god i can't solve this i don't know how to change this i can't fix this there's nothing i can do but god you're a miracle working god And you can intervene and you can open doors and you can bring to pass things and accomplish things that I could never do. And Lord, I'm just asking that you would work so that we would know that it was all your power and that it was you that did it and you would get the glory. And and God honored that because God delights to honor faith. God loves to honor humble dependency and reliance upon him. And he says, because you relied on the Lord. Oh, how God loves when we rely on upon him to work in our situations whether it's overcoming some sin that we can't defeat in our life or overcoming some circumstance that's just too hard for us to fix or to resolve on our own notice verse 9 for the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth the prophet says to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him in this the prophet says you have done foolishly that is relying on the king of Syrians that are relying upon the Lord. In this, you've done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, he says, you're going to have wars. In other words, you're going to experience unnecessary conflict and challenges now that you've brought upon yourself because instead of getting a resolution, you sought immediate relief and now you're going to have to deal with more complications because you didn't let God just work in the situation because you impatiently jumped and relied upon the flesh instead of relying upon the Lord. What a beautiful statement there, verse 9. I mean, just one of those statements we have in the Bible in the Old Testament that you're kind of just worthy to meditate upon and consider what's really being conveyed there. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That is God searching, he's looking, it says, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him keep in mind that's setting connection to the fact of what was just stated in the prior verses of relying upon man rather than relying upon the lord which tells me something when he says there god is looking for someone whose heart is loyal to him the idea there in the rebuke to asa is god views apparently not relying on him as disloyalty in the relationship 
because he says God's looking for those whose hearts are loyal to him and in this you've just done foolishly your heart wasn't loyal to the Lord there Asa God saying and so really what God is reminding all of us is that in those times when we don't rely upon the Lord from God's perspective that's viewed as disloyalty in our relationship with God it's a form of disloyalty towards the Lord because basically what we're saying is Lord I don't know if I don't know if you're trustworthy enough to rely upon. Lord, I don't know if I can be confident that you're going to come through. Lord, I don't know if, if I can take a chance with just relying on you and trusting that you know, you, you're, you're going to take care of things or that you're going to follow through. Lord, I know you promised, but I don't know if, I don't know if you'll follow through with your promise because nobody else follows through with their promises. And so we don't rely upon the Lord and God says, that's being disloyal to me in our relationship. You're not being loyal to me. You're not being committed to me and letting me be the God that I'm supposed to be in our relationship with one another. And so it says the eyes of the Lord are searching, running to and fro throughout the whole earth, just looking, it says, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That is, those whose hearts are willing to rely upon the Lord to say, Lord, we can't do it. I can't do it, Lord. And Lord, I don't want to do my own thing. Lord, what do you want to do? Lord, what do you want to do? And that is bringing loyalty, bringing our heart into complete allegiance and alliance with the Lord. Lord, what's on your heart? What do you want to do? I just want to be loyal to you, Lord. I just want to be committed to you and whatever you want, Lord. I don't want to do my thing or try and work my plan or try and manipulate my thing, Lord. I'm tired of doing that. Lord, I don't want to choose my way. Lord, I want your way and your plan and I just want to come into complete alliance and compliance with what you want as a loyal, devoted servant to you. And it says God's looking, looking all over the earth for a heart like that and he's wanting to show himself strong that is to bless and to empower and work strongly through a life like that, through a heart that has a heart that's in alignment with God's heart. What a beautiful thing to know that God's looking for such. You know, may we be the kind of people that say, Lord, if you're, if, if you're looking, may my heart be seen that way. May we want to have a heart that's loyal to the Lord and know what that means so that God would see that in our heart and show himself strong. Why not through our lives? Why not through our lives that God would sow himself strong as he sees loyalty in our heart towards him? Well, as this rebuke comes, notice, unfortunately, verse 10, like all of us, sometimes we don't like being corrected. And Asa's no different. He was a man at best. Notice verse 10, Asa says, was angry with the seer. He just got rebuked for his unbelief and his disloyalty to God and being foolish in his actions. So Asa, unfortunately, was angry with the seer and he put him in prison for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Notice when you start pulling back from the Lord, um, it, it starts doing unhealthy things to your heart. Now Asa is mistreating people. He's, you know, finding himself angry with people, enraged and even oppressing people and, and harming people. And again, when you start disconnecting from the Lord, man, that natural selfishness just starts exuding from your life and the heart gets all polluted and messed up. Verse 11 says, note, the acts of Asa first and last are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And then in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. 
And his malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa rested with his fathers and died in the 41st year of his reign, and they buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients and prepared in a mixture of ointments, which was typical as a way they would do that to sort of subdue the odor of the body as they uh, put them in a tomb as they died. And they made a great burning for him, sort of to remember him at the end of his life. Again, verse 12 reminds us that Asa, unfortunately, you know, kind of kept this pattern going. Kind of a sad thing to see. Here's this man, lived really well, walked with the Lord, loved God, was used powerfully of the Lord, but to the, toward the end of his life, just began to kind of slip gears a little bit and started not trusting the Lord. And rather than being humble and repentant when he was rebuked by the prophet, he just got angry and hard-hearted to the point where we ultimately see here in verse 12, toward the end of his life, three, four years after this time, he incurred some type of a terminal disease, it seems, that began in his feet and the malady was so severe. Again, we don't know what it was. Commentators speculate. We're not told. But what God took note of was that in his disease, he, he didn't seek the Lord, just physicians. Now, again, uh, certainly nothing wrong with seeking physicians. The, the Bible tells us uh, that you know, there's a benefit and a value to utilizing physicians in medicine. Luke was a physician and he traveled around with Paul as his missionary partner. If there's anything Paul needed more than assistant pastor, it was probably a doctor because he was always getting beat up and stoned everywhere. And, and you know, just that guy was just a mess. I mean, he just, he just was a worse for the wear all the time. So he just, Paul needed a physician and God knew that. If we're going to keep this guy ticking, he needs his own doctor. And so he had Luke traveling on with him. You know, Paul told Timothy to, he said, not only drink water, but he said also to use, not drink recreationally, but he said, use a little, and the word little is there, wine for your stomach and frequent infirmities. The idea is he was to use at times in a medicinal way, uh, the wine that existed in that time in the culture to sort of kill some of the bacteria. He was having digestive issues. And so God encouraged it from a medicinal perspective. Again, nothing wrong with utilizing physicians. You know, uh, they have their value and purpose. The Bible upholds that. But the unfortunate thing is Asa was so kind of hard-hearted towards the Lord, he would utilize physicians, but he wouldn't seek the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, yes, I'm seeing this doctor, but Lord, do you want to heal me? Lord, give me wisdom. And again, if we're going to seek a physician, certainly we, we should seek a doctor, but at the same time, seek the Lord as well. And maybe sometimes seek the Lord first, even before we seek a doctor. Uh, may save some of us a few dollars, potentially, in the process. Maybe if we go to the right doctor first, we might not have to go to the second and third and fourth and fifth opinion sometimes. You know what I mean? Seek the right doctor. Seek the right dentist. Seek the right... I mean, that stuff's not cheap, right? <laughs> we all need the, the utilization of it, but God says, look, I want to take care of everything in your life. And there are times, look, where I think God is merciful and gracious. I can't tell you how many times, you know, being a one-income family and raising three kids, there were more than one times where I, we, we, we prayed sincerely, Lord, if we've got to go, we'll take them. But Lord, if you want to heal and Lord, you want to help. And, you know, sometimes as parents, you know, you, you, you pray that more for yourself, for your kids, for your kids, you want to get them to the physician right away. But it's like, Lord, just please heal me in Jesus name. I don't want another copay. You know, just and you pray and the Lord will heal you, you know, because 
Johnny needs a new pair of shoes. Just heal me, Jesus. You know, and, and, and seeking the Lord. Lord, touch me. Heal me. Look, has God given us physician? Yes. But God was displeased because he said, Asa, you didn't even seek me. You didn't ask me if I wanted to heal you. You didn't ask me for help or relief or guidance in your medical treatment. And again, it was just another indication of his, really, of his independent spirit. He'd become very self-sufficient and he wasn't willing to rely upon the Lord. And God wants us to rely upon him. Well, chapter 17, verse 1 begins then with the successor of Asa, and that's Jehoshaphat, his son, who reigned in his place. And Jehoshaphat strengthened himself against Israel And he placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. So he was sort of reinforcing the different strategic cities uh, that they had taken control of in the time of his father to keep themselves protected against attack from the north. And verse 3 says, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, because he walked in the former ways of his father, David. Another inference, David, of course, known as a man after God's own heart. And often when we see those phrases to walking in the ways of his father, David, uh, God's alluding to the fact of just the love that David had for the Lord and just how David was a man that just had a heart after God. Again, wasn't perfect, but he was certainly someone who loved the Lord and walked with the Lord. And he did not seek the Baals, But, verse 4, Jehoshaphat, notice what characterized his life. He was a godly man as well as a king in Judah. It says, he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Again, the idolatry that was going on in the northern area of Israel at that time. So Jehoshaphat, like uh, his father, also was a godly man. It says that he sought God. He walked in God's commandments, that he was someone who was actively seeking the Lord. He was a man of worship, a man of prayer, someone who sought God for help and direction. And he walked in obedience to God's commands. He didn't walk in his own ways. He didn't walk according to the patterns of the world. He walked in accordance with the commandments of God. In verse 5, notice God honored that. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat and he had riches and honor and abundance. So the people were bringing tribute to him as their king. They loved him and appreciated him and wanted to honor him. Verse six says, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. And moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Again, he was someone who as well, conducting spiritual reform. It says removing the high places, the wooden images. Again, he's further clearing out those things in the land at that time that he knew were displeasing to God. And he's seeking to bring reforms, moral reforms, to the lives of the people in the nation, removing those things. And the reason, verse 6, behind that, notice, was his own personal love for the Lord. I love what it says of him in verse 6, that he took his heart, it says, took delight in the ways of the Lord. To take delight means to take pleasure in. That is, the ways of the Lord to him weren't burdensome. He actually found pleasure in the ways of the Lord. The Bible tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I don't think that just means, well, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you every desire that you want in your selfish heart from time to time. 
I think when we delight ourselves in the Lord, sometimes God does bless and honor and reward us with desires in our heart. But the more important thing is that when you and I delight ourselves in the Lord, that is when you're just finding pleasure and enjoyment in the Lord, you just love the Lord. Lord, I just love you. It's such a delightful thing, Lord, to just spend time with you and enjoy your presence. And you just start to enjoy the presence of the Lord and times of fellowship or worship or taking a walk and praying or sitting in a quiet moment in your house or turning on a worship song and just, you know, enjoying the presence of the Lord and privacy of your home or your car when you're driving or in the house of God. And just, well, Lord, it's just such a joy. It's a delight to know you. To spend time with you, Lord, it's so pleasurable and enjoyable that it says he gives us the desires of our heart. In other words, what God does is God starts to put his desires onto our hearts. And then he does give us the desires of our heart because they're his desires on our heart and not our desires. Oh, how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, just start loving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, walking close with the Lord, fall in love with the Lord, and he'll start putting desires on your heart, and those desires will be his desires, and then he'll bring to pass and give you those desires because they're his desires that he put there. And now your desires and his desires are one, like two people who fall in love, and they just begin to, as a result of that, just begin to find a unison in their you know, fellowship and the harmony of the relationship. That's the idea. Verse 7 says that it was then in the third year of his reign that he then also sent his leaders, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, and Zechariah, and Nathanael, and Mixiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them he also sent Levite, Shemaiah, and Nethaniah, and Zebediah, and I'm not going to pronounce the rest of those ayahs. With Elishama and Jehoram the priest, verse 9, so they taught in Judah, and the book of the law of the Lord was with them, so they went throughout all the cities of Judah, and they taught the people. So take notice, one of the things that was on the heart, very beautiful, of King Jehoshaphat as a godly man, is he said, not only want to remove what's evil from the nation, but he said, I want to implement what's good and godly into the lives of the people. So it says that he initiated to send out leaders as well as Levites, those God-ordained ministers and priests. And it says he sent them out all throughout the territories of Israel and they taught the people in Judah the book of the law of the Lord. In other words, he sent them out and he said, look, here's what I want you to do. Go instruct people in the ways of God. Go teach people about God. Tell them who God is and what God's really like and what God wants of us. And he wanted the people to increase in the knowledge of God. And just a beautiful thing to see how he was sending out these individuals and and the emphasis of their responsibility was to teach the people was to go out and to just teach them the word of God that they might be strengthened in their own understanding of the Lord and God's will and God's ways. And verse 10 is the result of this sending them out and God working in these beautiful ways through his reign as a leader. It says the fear of the Lord then fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. That is, it brought a time of peace. It minimized conflict and just a great time of peace uh, came in connection to doing what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Also, verse 11, some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents 
and silver as tribute. So now his enemies as well are coming and submitting to him. And the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful and he built fortresses and stored cities in Judah. So now he's beginning to experience success, prosperity, God's blessing him. He's becoming strong. He's gaining momentum as a leader and he's experiencing the blessing of the Lord in his life and on his reign as a leader. And he had, verse 13, much property, it says, in the cities of Judah and the men of war, mighty men of valor were in Jerusalem. And these are their numbers according to their father's houses of Judah. It says the captains of thousands, Adna, the captain, and with him 300,000 mighty men of valor. Next to him then was Johanan, the captain, and with him 280,000. And next to him was a man named Amasiah, the son of Zikri, who willingly offered himself to the Lord. And with him 200,000 mighty men of valor of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 men armed with a bow and shield. Next to him, Jehozabad, with him 180,000 prepared for war. And these served the king, besides those the king put in the fortified cities throughout all of Judah. So it begins to describe some of the, the great military and some of these, if you would, commanders over the army, these generals and military leaders that were uh, providing leadership under the delegation of the king at this time. And I love how verse 16, the Holy Spirit just you know gives us this beautiful uh, sentiment there in verse 16 regarding this one man, Amasiah. The Holy Spirit takes note and credits him for being someone as a leader who willingly offered himself to the Lord. I like that. Was it a responsibility? Of course it was. Was it his role and a requirement he had certain duties? Of course it was. But he also saw it as something that I don't do this out of obligation. I do this willingly. I serve the Lord willingly. I get to do this, the idea is. I get to live for the Lord. I get to do the things that God allows. It says he willingly offered himself to the Lord. It wasn't begrudging. You know, the, God wants us to serve him willingly. It tells us in Psalm 100 that, that we're to serve the Lord with gladness. I mean, yes, is there an aspect of being diligent, being faithful, just like we do, you know, at our job or anything? Of course. But God also wants us to serve from a willing heart. He doesn't want grudging service or complaining or griping. Oh, I got to do this. But, but serving willingly. That's what God wants as we do things for him, that we would willingly offer ourselves to the Lord. Here am I, Lord. Use me. How can I help, Lord? How can I serve, Lord? Whether it's to, to lead or to do something, to lend a hand, Lord, how can I serve willingly? And I love how the end of the, the, the chapter there, verse 19, they served the king. They served the king. That's what they all did. They all did different things, right? They had different roles and responsibilities. Some of the leaders were, you know, in control of, of you know, captains of thousands and some upwards to, you know, 100,000 mighty men of valor. They all had different levels of responsibility, different things they were to take care of, different duties to discharge. But the one thing that they all knew, we all served that same king. All of us that are doing what we're doing, we're all doing what we're doing. 
on our place in the battlefront, on our place over here, but we all represent the same king and we're all serving the same king. We're all submitted under his authority. And we just want to do our part to willingly contribute to serving the king in the capacity that he's asked us to serve him. And you know what? What a great reminder for us. What a great reminder for us. That is the body of Christ. We're not all the same. A body has many parts. We're individually members of one another. And just like a body has all different functions and parts and you need an eye and you need a hand and you need a foot and you even need a big toe or you'll lose your balance. Oh, I don't want to be a big toe. That stinks, man. Oh, I don't want to be a big toe. I don't want to. Nobody sees the big toe. Right, but... In the Old Testament, when they would conquer people in battle, what would they do? They would cut off their right toes and they would cut off their right thumbs. That's what they would do to basically incapacitate the enemy to be unable to retaliate because when you cut off the right toes, people couldn't walk or run well. They would lose. They, they, they had no footing. So you could have strong biceps. You could have incredible quads. You could run a 40-yard dash and I don't know what's fast, but whatever fast might be. But you cut off those right toes. None of that matters anymore. They cut off their thumbs. Because if you didn't have thumbs, you can't grip things. You can't do the things that you would normally do. So you might have an incredible brain. You might have a really good working heart. You might have a great eye and great ears or somebody who could speak incredibly. But if, if you can't do certain things, you're, in a sense, disabled because those two thumbs aren't working right. And see, we need to realize God has called us all to different roles and different capacities to be able to recognize, Lord, who am I and what is your part and role for me in the body of Christ? And Lord, help me then to offer myself willingly to realize I am important because you are important. Ephesians 4 says that when all the body works together, functioning in our different roles and the ways that God wants each and every one of us to serve in some capacity, that then the body grows and is edified and loved the way it's supposed to. You know, just like if something goes wrong in the human body, the whole rest of the body struggles, right? The whole rest of the body is compensating and struggling because of a, a malady or a limitation somewhere else in the body. The same in the body of Christ. When we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing, it contributes to growth and health and the body can grow and progress. When one person even, according to what I understand the word, when one person says, oh, I'm not important, I don't, I don't have a function, I don't want to be involved and, and just kind of disconnects for whatever the reason, you know, oh, I just, I have no purpose, I don't get to, it, it actually inhibits the body of Christ. It holds back the growth of the body. It hinders the rest of the body because now somebody who's supposed to be doing this is trying to compensate for the missing big toe or the missing right thumb or the eye or the ear that we're supposed to be in fulfilling the function. So let us remember, we all serve the same king. May God give us the grace to do it willingly. Why don't we stop there this evening at the end of chapter 17 because 18 picks up some thoughts that uh, kind of flow as one whole section. So why don't we stand together and let's...